Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voisin, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And I want to thank all of my listeners who come from around the world to listen to the words of wisdom from our authors. And we thank you all because now we're approaching some 610 podcast interviews over the last 10 years. And without all of my listeners, George, uh, I don't know where I'd be. This has been a great, a great, great run. Um, uh, joining me on the line from really in the middle of California somewhere is George Kuros. And George is the author of a book called Innovator's Mindset. And I actually happened to see this. I know all of you think that this is kind of a conundrum, but there's an Amazon bookstore in La Jolla. And his book was actually featured on the uh, kind of the setup that they had there. And it just intrigued me. And I'm doing a book on innovation myself. And I said, I need to talk to George. George, thanks for being on uh, the show with me today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's kind of cool to hear the book is spreading. And uh, it's nice that I've got several pictures actually showing me that uh, that same setup in Amazon and different stores. So it's kind of nice to know that, that uh, the book is getting out there to a, a wide audience. Yeah, it is. And they're actually doing a good job of profiling you in their stores and I know for most people, they go online to look at things like that, but this was actually in one of the bookstores. I'm going to actually let people know a little bit about you, George, because you got a short bio on his website. By the way, you can find George at George Kuros. It's at C-O-U-R-O-S dot C-A. He's a Canadian. And um, at that website, you'll learn about the innovator's mindset, the speaking and consultant presentations, and so on. Uh, George is a real pro. He's a learner. He's an educator, an innovator, a teacher, learning and leadership consultant. He's also the author of this book we're going to talk to him about called The Innovator's Mindset. <clears throat> and he believes he needs to inspire kids to follow their passions while letting them inspire us to do the same. Uh, for any of those who want to contact George, it's georgekuros at gmail.com. Pretty easy way to get in touch with him. Well, George, right off the bat in the book, you mentioned Carol Dweck, this uh, Stanford psychologist and author of Mindset, The New Psychology of Success. And <clears throat> she encourages educators to introduce students to the concept of the growth mindset. What are the differences in your estimation between a growth mindset and this other reference to the other side, the fixed mindset? Yeah, actually, several years ago, when I was a principal, I read uh, Carol Dweck's work and looked at a lot of the stuff that uh, she had researched and, and shared, and it was uh, really captivating. Uh, but, but part of my work is looking at uh, what is happening to schools, what does education mean, what's happening around the world, what are people looking for when students are coming out of school. And so the notion of the growth mindset, uh, the idea that basically, you know, if you, if you believe and you work and, and you kind of change some of your language that you can kind of learn anything, but it's, it's how you think about things uh, was really powerful. And uh, when I actually looked at that idea, it, it, it's kind of a little bit repackaged, uh, just kind of saying how things have always been in education. We want kids to, you know, believe that they can do well in math. And, and so that changes things, but it's not necessarily what the world is now asking for, especially from our students as they're coming out of school. So the idea of the innovator's mindset is not just learning, it's doing something with what you're learning, it's what you're creating from it. And uh, I usually take Carol Dweck's uh, 
analogy and I use it and compare it to my own. So when I talk about it, the fixed mindset uh, in the context of playing something like the piano is I would never learn to be able to play the piano. Growth mindset with hard work, time, effort, I can learn to play. But innovators mindset, I will not only learn to play, I will compose and create music. And I think that's a real big uh, distinguishing factor. And it's not saying the growth mindset isn't important, but it's, it's a step towards something bigger and better for our schools. And there's a really compelling quote from uh, Thomas Friedman in an article he wrote. Uh, it was basically how to get a job. And he talked about what, what people are looking for at Google. And it wasn't necessarily grades. And he was talking about collaboration skills, how you lead, your flexibility. And one of the quotes that really resonated with me, and it, it talks, it's really succinct on what is the shift is happening in our world that the world doesn't care what you know. The world only cares about what you can do with what you know and doesn't care how you learned it. And so that's kind of like if you took the book, that's, that's one of the big premises right there. Definitely. You know, and I love what you're teaching and not only teaching to the world through your book, but you're teaching educators uh, as well. And that's a big part of this. And, you know, I'm a proverbial serial entrepreneur myself and have been all my life and involved in many different uh, areas. And this next question is really about that. Um, You know, I have tons of failures to my name and I have fewer successes, but you mentioned that having the freedom to fail is important to innovation, but that even more important are the traits of resiliency and grit. Can you relate the Dyson story that you have in the book and talk about resiliency and grit in the innovation process, as you talk about? Well, the notion is that one of the narratives that's actually happening in education, and I've really pushed back against it, is teaching kids the notion of embracing failure. And I, I understand the, the narrative of that, what, what teachers are trying to say is to be comfortable with failure. Um, but actually, I have a disdain for failure, but I do understand it's part of the process. And that's what we're really trying to teach kids is that failure is just something that happens through the work that you do. But it's really, you know, that continuous pursuit and, and grit and, that, as you said, the resiliency. And when I talked about James Dyson, that, that was kind of thrown back at me. Well, you know, James Dyson, the inventor of the Dyson vacuum, uh, he failed, right. I think it was recorded 5,000 times before mm-hmm. he invented the Dyson vacuum. And what I say to almost people like is t- that... Almost as he, much as Thomas Edison. Edison failed 10,000 times on the light bulb. Yep. Right. But, <laughs> yeah, but they're, go ahead. They're, 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 they're often used as these, you know, these models of failure, but you wouldn't even know their name unless they kept going until their things worked. Like the only reason you know Dyson's name like we, is because he has, you know, the most popular vacuum in the world. You wouldn't know him if, if that never actually worked. And so it's that, it's that constant pursuit of, you know, failure happens and you have to understand it's part of the process, but when you, you know, it shouldn't be a finality. And I think that constant growth and development, and, and there's lots of things that, you know, I've learned from that didn't work the way that I liked them. But it's, but once you stop that final failure, that that's not something that we want. It's just how do we redirect and continuously pursue, you know, excellence and success. I think that's very crucial to understand. Well, that's your innovator's mindset. You have critical questions that you believe an educator should be asking. What are some of those questions and how do you help educators transform a classroom. Now, I want to let my listeners know this isn't just about a classroom because a classroom could be a, 
it, the same thing inside of a corporation because we have a real cross set of people that are listening to this show. Uh, and it's not only educators. You're going to find a lot of people are entrepreneurs, small business people, own businesses, and so on. But I think this applies, these questions apply whether you're an educator or you're a CEO of a company. Well, I think the big one, and I think that's like really understanding, because uh, I think that if you, when you read my book, you understand that, you know, even though it's kind of written for educators, it's actually totally applicable to many different areas, especially like entrepreneurship business. And one of those critical questions um, that I, that educators ask is what I want to be a student in my own classroom. And when we ask this, do we create these environments? Do we create these experiences in our classroom that kids are excited to be about? And I think this is very important to understand in our world today that we have kind of taken for granted that school could be optional to our students. They're, 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 they're now making other choices, right? A lot of more parents are homeschooling, charter schools, different elements of this. And I think that we really need to understand that, but you apply that to any other field, you know, whether you're making a, a phone or an app for somebody, you have to kind of go into the position of the person that you are serving and move backwards from there, not simply doing, you know, necessarily what you're comfortable with. And when you hear this with a lot of educators and teachers, when they're talking about things, um, what we're trying to get them to shift away is what they're comfortable with to what a student needs. And I think that's, you know, when you're, when you're looking at becoming an entrepreneur, you know, you're developing a new business, it is kind of looking at what other people need moving backwards from there. And I think schools and how we do education should be no different. Mm -hmm. And, and I would agree. And I think a lot of the schools, of course, you're seeing a lot of transformation in our schools are kind of in the dark ages still, but many of them have progressed and very innovative, um, but many of them are not. And you have identified eight characteristics of what you call the innovator's mindset. If you wouldn't mind for our listeners briefly, what are those eight characteristics? Because you've got a great little uh, diagram in the book of those, and I think they're they're really important for people to know. Those eight characteristics are actually really, really crucial in the, in the work that we're doing and, and what we're talking about with our uh, students. But it, it's kind of interesting because these characteristics are not exclusive to only students or teachers or principals. They're actually crucial to any facet. And so the first one is empathetic. Mm -hmm. and, and I kind of mentioned that briefly is like kind of thinking from the, from the person you serve viewpoint and actually moving backwards from there. Uh, the second one is problem finders and, and that idea of not just, you know, solving problems, but looking around the world and looking what are some of the issues that we have and actually trying to find that um, and moving back there and while also problem solving. And I think that, you know, that's a very crucial because we're looking for people who are self-starters, looking around and, and what's happening around the world as opposed to, you know, just waiting to be told what to solve. Uh, the next is risk takers. And I think this term is misconstrued, obviously, like in many cases, when we talk about risks, people kind of picture someone doing something, you know, dangerous or you know, something wrong, but the way I look at it, risk-taking is simply, you know, moving from something you're comfortable with to something that could be better. And I think that's where the risk happens. 
uh, networked, obviously, is one of them. How do we connect with other people and how do we see collaboration as not only a face-to-face skill but online skill? Uh, I have access to, uh, I think, 143,000 people following me on Twitter, and that's not just a popularity contest. There's a real power in the, the ability to ask questions from this large network of people that can help me with stuff. Uh, the next idea is observant kind of paying attention to the world, looking at what other things do. You'll actually notice in my book, even though it's written for education, I talk about Starbucks, Google. And so we're looking because more and more of these companies are posting what they're doing in their organizations. And then we'll take those ideas and then we'll reshift them, you know, for education. Uh, The next idea is creators that we're actually not only uh, learning stuff, but we're making new stuff. We're creating in, in different ways. Obviously, resiliency that we talked about earlier is that continuous process of developing and, you know, not giving up and and going through that process. And then ultimately, the last one is reflective. That notion of looking backwards so you can move forward is so crucial in the work that we do. And I think that's actually one of the most crucial characteristics of this whole thing is that we spend so much time doing things. We don't spend enough time trying to understand why we're doing them, what's worked, what hasn't, and how do we move forward. And I think that's what we're really trying to focus, you know, our, our educators and our students to develop because, as I said, if you're not looking backwards at all, it's hard, very hard to move forward. Well, so importantly, that eighth step that you talked about, reflective, I'm looking at the chart here as you were speaking, and I think there's many, many important uh, elements to what you discussed, but really the reflective part, because it gives you an opportunity to learn from not only your mistakes, but also the the successes that you've had, uh, and to be able to use that to move forward. Now, you state that there's three most important words in education are relationships, relationships, relationships. Um, What role does trust play in this education process? I remember you were talking about uh, Stephen Covey Jr., uh, somebody who I've uh, interviewed a couple of times about his book, Trust. Um, Talk with us about trust in education. Well, I think it's not just an education, it's in all facets. And as, as you mentioned, Covey talks about the speed of trust. And it's a you know, very pivotal book in, in my career. And his uh, the leader, the, the Seven Habits, is obviously a, a big component. You can kind of read elements of that are all over my book as well. Um, it, the, the notion of when you micromanage somebody, uh, it's very hard for them to do you know, very high-quality work and we tend to micromanage kids, like we tell them what they can learn, when they should learn it, and you know how we know that they're they're doing well. And we start creating these cultures where kids basically, you know, your top achieving students, what they do is they basically do what is expected, but never really go beyond. And I think that you have to pull some things away and you know put them in spaces where they can be successful. Um, but not necessarily like micromanage and, and micromanaging uh, takes a lot of work, but it doesn't necessarily develop the results that we want. And how do we give people freedom to try different things and, you know, take some of these risks, talk about some of these things. And I think that's a really important part of culture is that if you feel that every single step of what you're doing is, is micromanaged and, and you're not trusted, you barely go above and beyond, you know, what is expected. And we're, we're trying to develop this is that, uh, when we work with our teachers, when, you know, administrators, when bosses, uh, whoever, how do you develop that trust and how do you give it back and forth? And, and people, you know, if you build those relationships, 
they tend to go above and beyond what is expected. But if that relationship is not there, they kind of just do their job. And we want to, we want them to go way beyond that. Well, I think in today's world to create a culture where, you know, you have that big trust factor that people have autonomy, uh, that you're trusting them enough to, to not only do the job, but to go beyond what you're doing. Where, and that leads us to this section because we talk a lot about this in the business workplace, and that's about engagement. And you actually address this, this issue between engaging and empowering students. And again, I want to point out to my listeners that this applies to the workplace as much as it does to the educational space. And you say that it's important that educators have a shift in their mindset about engagement to empowerment. Explain in your mind what you think the differences are because the workforce looks to see how much engagement they can have. And they know right now, right now, about 17% of the employers in the United States on the recent Gallup poll are the employees engaged. Yeah, and that's a, that's a big shift. And, and especially with the, the world changing so significantly, one of the things that I say to educators, especially students, and this is a lot different from when I, when I went to school, and school was the place where you went to get content. But now you can get content anywhere. And in fact, and the way that content is delivered, it's actually much more engaging than, you know, what a teacher would be if they simply delivered it that way. And one of the things I always say to educators and I include myself in this, is that none of us are as interesting as YouTube. And so if you're looking for engagement, you know, just, you know, people are interested in what they're doing, it's actually kind of a low bar in our world. And so when we talk about the notion of moving to empowerment, they, people have ownership, they're creating, they're, they're being, you know, more involved in that process. And when you actually, you know, when you work with a business and you're developing a vision, there's a difference between um, developing a vision for the people that work for you, for your employees, as opposed to developing a vision that they've created together as a team, because now I have ownership over this. I feel empowered. And so it's not that the company is a fail, it's that we have. There's something that's just much more power into this. And when you look at this, it's kind of the idea that a lot of people have challenged me on this. They'll say, well, isn't engagement crucial? And I say, absolutely, it is crucial. But the thing with, if you shoot for the notion of engagement, that doesn't mean they're empowered. But if you can actually get someone who is empowered, they're already engaged. I think it goes so much more beyond. And I think that goes back to that notion of creation, having ownership, you know, developing these ideas. When people feel that they're, you know, not only teaching the school, but that school is theirs too. Every student in that school is, you know, their child. I think that's a really important process. And I think it's the same way when, you know, you look at, you know, the most successful companies, they, they believe um, one of the, the most popular companies, WestJet um, in Canada, the airline company, they actually, the people that work for them actually own shares in them. They feel they are like one of the bosses of the company. There's a whole different level of empowerment as opposed to just do your job, right? And I think, I think mm-hmm. that's something that we look to that's going above and beyond. Well, that's empowering to people because there's also a financial incentive there as well. And I think it's important for kids to realize that, you know, being empowered uh, versus just engage gives them the opportunity to to reach you know for that that first place uh, goal that they might be looking for as well. Now you've got a great yeah, you're, you're, chart. You're actually seeing, 
Go ahead. Sorry, you're actually you're actually seeing seeing students now that are you know they're not just doing projects for school; they're doing projects for the world. They're creating content. They're sharing stuff. We have mm-hmm. kids that are developing and inventing things in school, and then they're actually having a business that they develop because of the work that they're doing in school. And there, there's such a different level of learning when they they feel that they're actually making an impact on the world as opposed to just doing school. I think it's a very crucial point. Oh, it is, and you know, I, I, I'm a, a big fan of the um, uh, Shark Tank show, and it's amazing how many young children are coming on that show with amazing ideas that they thought up themselves and got funded by uh, either their parents or they came to the Shark Tank to get funded. But it it just surprises me how young these entrepreneurs, eight, nine, ten, eleven years old, coming out of school that are so articulate and, and so well-versed in their topic. Now, you have a great chart in the book about eight things to look for in today's classroom. And I think these are eight things you really want to look for almost anywhere as well. My wife was a school teacher for 24 years. What are the things and why are they, the, what are the opportunities to innovate? Uh, why are the opportunities so, to innovate so important in your mind, George? And, and, you'll, and when I discuss these, you'll see lots of overlap in, in some of the stuff that I've already talked about. So uh, one of the first ones is voice. How do we actually, uh, you know, going back to that notion of empower, uh, you know, people can share their voice, share what they're doing. The next one is choice so that they have. And look at companies, for example, like Google, known for uh, 20% time where people actually develop, you know, products products or work on projects that would actually move the Google mission forward. Uh, not necessarily because they were told to, but because they had, you know, something they were passionate about. Uh, the next one, the next one was time for reflection. Where do we have actually, again, making time to look backwards so we can move forward. Um, the other is opportunities for innovation. And this is a very crucial one because when we're actually looking at school, we still have state or, you know, provincial mandates where you have to do curriculum, but it's actually how do we ensure that we're tapping into the passions of our kids while making sure that we do those things that we're expected to do of our job. Um, The next one is critical thinkers. And I think this is a very important one, especially, you know, with the, you know, the recent U.S. election, uh, seeing this, how we assess information, how do we actually connect to it? How do we, you know, think differently about it and take information that's coming our way? Uh, The next one, again, problem finders and solvers. How do we encourage kids not to just solve problems that are posed to them, but actually see things that they can do around the school, the local or global community to make a difference? Self-assessment obviously applies not only to education, but to the business. How do I actually constantly look and see where I'm at, where how I develop and, and where I need to grow and what my strengths are and how I tapped into them? And, and then the notion of connected learning. How do we collaborate face-to-face? How do we also connect online? And I think one of the things that schools, a lot of schools, a lot more, especially in the last little while, are doing really an amazing way is you see a lot of educators connecting with some educators all over the world, and they're bringing your ideas, whether it's from Australia or Canada or Finland, and they're putting those ideas into the classroom because they have access to this, where it used to be only schools would connect within their schools. Uh, and now that's actually trickling down where we're seeing students connect with other students around the world and learning how to network. Um, one example is there's a teacher, her name is Perneal Rip. She started a project called the Global Read Aloud and has hundreds of thousands of students actually reading a book together at the same time all over the world. And these classrooms are Skyping and using FaceTime and 
uh, Twitter and they're connecting with each other and, you know, sharing conversations, even though uh, it's still tied to a book. And so these are things that we see as really crucial and it's really changed a lot from when I went to school and probably many of us went to school. Uh, but you can actually see a lot of these similarities, as you said, are are really crucial in the way that we're doing business too. And these are all, like, like I said, these things are not, you know, separated. And in fact, many of these ideas are actually brought from the business world to tap in to ensure that we're, you know, having kids walk out, that they're ready to make a huge impact on the world uh, in what is expected from them. Well, what I like about how school is transformed that I've seen is it's, it's collaborative and it, it's not competitive. Although I do believe there's still this element. I interviewed another a professor from a, a, a Philadelphia university today, you know, that, you know, we still have that mindset in the universities about uh, less collaboration um, and more competitiveness because that's been ingrained in this whole culture of education. But, you know, you made a statement in the book that technology is just, in quotes, a tool. Uh, what role do you believe technology should play in helping to transform students? First part of the question. And what's the balance between powerful learning? Yeah, and actually, when we when I talked in the book, I actually differentiated and say technology is not just a tool. The idea that technology uh, is actually transformational, and we don't even recognize it sometimes because we're so numb to it. Like, for example, uh, I'm sitting here, I'm from Canada, I'm sitting in a hotel in California. Well, the technology that allowed me to do that is a plane and a car, obviously. You and I are talking on a phone, uh, you know, uh, doing this interview, then a podcast is going to go to hundreds of thousands of people. These are allowing, these technologies are now allowing us to do things that we could not do before. And so just kind of dismissing them as a tool it's something that we have to really push. But um, when you're looking at schools, how are they bringing these things into bring into uh, bringing them into? Like we have students up. Uh, just uh, Brad Gustafson, a, a principal in Minnesota. I just actually did a podcast with him yesterday. He actually has his students podcasting um, on a weekly basis from his principal's office. So they do a podcast together. They they share what's going on in the school and they connect with parents. And it's a beautiful way to actually, you know, bring communication into uh, into the schools. But most people that are maybe listening to this are used to the newsletter coming home, which is what I got, which is probably what, you know, people older than me got. And now you're seeing this difference. And, and, and you go back to the notion of empowerment. These, these students in, in, a, in a school feel very empowered through this process because they it's their school they're sharing the message they're finding out what's important but why i talk about the notion of powerful learning is uh brad was able to initiate this because he immersed himself as a learner he develops all these things and looks at these different ways that you can learn as as a, a just a human being and then he starts immersing them in his classroom and i think a lot of people you know, we don't understand what what impact technology can have on ourselves. So then it's really hard to actually implement it with others. And I think this is really important as an educator is that we immerse ourselves into this learning so we can understand it from that viewpoint as opposed to simply just teaching it to kids without really knowing what not, like what, what to do. And one of the things I always say is we would never be comfortable 
having a, a, a teacher teach math to kids that has never learned math, but we do that far too often with technology. We have to learn it ourselves first before we can actually move it, move forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do agree with you on that. Totally. Now, you know, with my last question here, I think this is really an important one. And you said in the book that you state that creativity is where we start to think differently and innovation is where creativity comes to life. How do you help students to start thinking that they're creators? Well, the reality is they're already creators when they walk into school. I think that's like they're very curious when they walk into school. They're, you know, you watch like we have a, a, a baby girl. She's only, you know, approaching four months and you already see curiosity and wonder in eyes and what she tries to manipulate. I think what we're trying to do is foster that creativity. We're fostering those kids, creating this stuff. And I think what school has done in many cases is actually taken away this creativity from kids that they, they literally walked into school with. And I think that we just need to rethink and how these kids that when they walk out of school, they're not just really good at school. They're still developing as learners. They see learning as really powerful. And um, I, I actually challenge teachers. I say, if I, if I was to go to your school, and I gave your kids a one-question survey with two possible answers, and I said, where do you learn best, school or YouTube? The majority of them would probably pick YouTube, and many schools still, still block this. And when we look at this, you know, can, we're not, I'm not looking for kids only to watch videos on YouTube. We're looking for students to actually develop their own channels, uh, create their own stuff. And I think if, if you tap into the passions and strengths of your students, they start finding their way. They start finding, you know, what they're creative. It's very hard to be creative in something you're not interested in. And that's what we ask kids all the time. And so we need to understand their passions, but also balance that with making sure we teach them, you know, necessary skills. Uh, There's lots of things that, you know, when I was a kid, I didn't like learning, but I'm so grateful I did. And you have to find this new balance. But a lot of times in schools, that's all it is, is kids learning things they're not interested in. And so, and they don't see the benefit of it. So I think you have to find ways to tap into that creativity, uh, you know, of the child that they're bringing to school, but also making sure that, you know, they have all the fundamental and basic skills because without those basic skills, you don't really get to the, to the innovation, you know, long-term. It's so true. And I, you know, for a long time, project-based learning has been around, you know, we've seen it for years now and the successes with it are pretty phenomenal uh, where you're actually, the kids are inspired to do projects around things they love versus being assigned something uh, that they don't love. And you do actually see tremendous transformation in the students as a result of all of these kinds of innovative ways that educators are getting the students, as you say, to be empowered, empowered and engaged, actually, but both. But it's a wonderful way. The transformation of educational system is obviously still got a long way to go, George. And I appreciate you spending the time with me today speaking about your book that not only would be good for an educator to read, but I really think almost anybody after having done a review of the book. So I'm going to highly recommend to my listeners you know, go out, get George's book. We'll put a link um, on the website uh, to the Amazon link to the book. 
Um, it's Innovator's Mindset, um, and the subtitle of that book is Empower Learning, Unleash Talent, and Lead a Culture of Creativity. And it's we've been on the phone today with George Kuros, and George was joining us from uh, the middle of California somewhere, but is a Canadian resident. Do go to his website. Um, check out his blog. He's got lots of entries in on his blog um, that I think are just fascinating. George, it's been a pleasure having you on Unsaid Personal Growth, spending a few minutes with my listeners uh, talking about your new book. Anything you want to leave, uh, any parting words you want to leave with uh, our listeners? I, I just just hopefully that, you know, the people listening are uh, seeing the impact that, you know, a shift in mindset can not only have, you know, on business, but on our students and our teachers and and hopefully, you know, um, we, we see more communities working together to really create all these powerful learning opportunities for kids. Because when I was a kid, uh, school was such a crucial place in the community, and I hope we never lose that. Uh, well said. George, thanks for being on. Hey, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. 